who could hold the claim that, hey, we are righteous people. We are just people. We are good people. It would be the Jews through whom we all know that through the Old Testament that God elected, that God chose through this nation, through Abraham and through the nation of Israel to reveal the law. They're supposed to be a light for the nation. And so to them, Paul addresses them in chapter 2, verse 17. And he says this, Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely, so he's saying if these things are true about you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, yes, they would say, yes, we do that. If you know God's will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, yes, we have the law, and yes, we, approve, we believe those things are superior. Verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in the dark, and the Jews would say, yes, we are. We're a guide for the blind because all the Gentiles are in the darkness and, and we have the light. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And Jews would say, yes, we have the law. We have the embodiment of truth. We have that. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among you because of the Gentiles. And so that that last little quote is, is from another Jewish text which says, gosh, all these religious leaders, all these Jewish leaders, and let's just, let's just make this broad application to today. All of these religious leaders who are ultra-religious, they are the golden, what I call the golden. Even those who are golden, sometimes, and it's usually really bad in the news and things like that, it's when they do something that's against what they preach, that's the, that is the opposite of what they say they profess, what the opposite of what they believe is called hypocrisy. And it usually gets in the news, and it's really bad. And so Paul, he's just describing this human experience for every single person, especially, especially how we kind of view the ultra-religious, that no matter how much you believe something to be right, no matter how much you believe in a particular doctrine, an ideology, and something that you are for, that you say that you are for, no matter how much conviction that you have that something is true or right, sometimes we just do the opposite. Right? And we call that hypocrisy. We call that hypocrisy. And it's really offensive. And it's anyone. It's not just the it's not just particularly the, the religious elite. And sometimes I know that, especially when you're a new believer, as a new believer, you want to hold on. You want to look for that perfect leader. You want someone that has all the right answers, who's like super, super close to God or has all of life figured out. And what Paul's saying that even the super, super religious, there is no one who is really, truly, ultimately super religious. There's a, um, uh, what in, in our sphere, our uh, Protestant denominational sphere, we, we, we have certain superstars, rock stars that we look up to. Like, for example, I mean, for us, it would be Billy Graham, right? I mean, Billy Graham is like the standard. We all compare ourselves to Billy Graham, right? And so, like, he's got everything down. He, you know, he's perfect. He's, his marriage is probably really good. I, I always enjoy this quote. This is, this is a real quote from the late Ruth Bell Graham, his wife, outspoken wife. Um, she was once asked, have you ever contemplated divorcing your husband, Billy Graham? Her reply, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> Even the religious, the ultimate, the golden boys, the golden girls, 
no matter what. We all have our problems. We all have areas that are just don't align up with everything that we say that we profess and know to be real and true. And we just know, right, that hypocrisy, right, that you say one thing, you do the opposite. When we see those, those, those other, you know, religious leaders, pastors, or any, in any religious, uh, you, know, you know, field, when they're caught as being a hypocrite, we're like, gosh, that, th those guys are so, those guys are so messed up. Those guys are so wrong, so evil, right? But there's something in our nature where we can live with ourselves by saying we believe in one thing, but our actions betray us. And so Paul is saying this, we are unjust in our own nature. We are unjust in our own nature, okay? That's what he's saying to this first group of, of the golden. Now Paul, he moves to another group, okay, there's three groups. He's got the golden, and now go back to chapter 1, verse 18. He's going to speak to the godless, what we would say the wicked, the depraved, evildoers, Okay, so chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Paul, now he's addressing the godless. And he says this, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may, may be known about God is plain to them. Now this is really, we're getting some interesting theological waters here. Paul is saying just, if you take people who maybe know nothing about God, all right, People just kind of living their life, so to, so to speak, and they're just finding their way into a lot of wickedness. Paul is saying even for them, people who are the, the furthest away from God, Paul is saying that at some point in their life, they see the only way you can suppress truth, right? Because that's what it says in verse 18. They suppress the truth. The only way you can suppress the truth is if you possess the truth, okay? So Paul is saying that they have the truth. There's something that they have. There's some knowledge of God that they are responsible for. And yet they suppress the truth because verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that means his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. So again, Paul creates this, this idea that God, yeah, we know God's invisible. And the qualities of God, right, maybe are invisible. But God's invisible qualities, namely his righteousness, his goodness, his power, his divine power, his divine nature of righteousness, what was invisible has been somehow clearly seen how being understood by what has been made so that people are without excuse. So Paul's argument here is that in general, taking a broad slice, in general, People have some understanding that there must be a God. Like, it must have run through, through people's mind at some point that there must be a God and there that God must be good because look at creation. Who made this? Who sustains this? Who sustains us? Look at people. It's amazing what people can do. And people are so different from all the other, you know, plants and animals and things like that. I mean, we're just so different from everything else. And that you would naturally ask, well, who made all this? There's something, there's some questions that might naturally lead you to God. But then he goes on, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So what he's saying is instead of acknowledging God and people being led by those questions to God, that humans rebelled against God. They tried, we tried, to fill our hearts with idols, with money, with fame, with relationships, with something that only God, your heavenly Father, could fill. So we exchanged, we said we didn't really want God, but we want something else. We want these other things in our life that can fill us and make us feel good about ourselves. That's what he says. And then he gets on, then it gets really bad. Verse 28 says this, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, said we, won't, we don't really want to think about God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. And so it's interesting. Sometimes we think that God is always like ready to punish sin. Uh, you know, God is re always ready to get you. Well, God says, Paul's saying that when it comes to your choices and doing what you want to do, even if it's evil, that God, there's a measure of freedom. He just says it's not punishment. It's just your own evil will kind of reap your own rewards. And so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what, not, what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. It's pretty bad. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, okay? Kids, Mia, they disobey their parents. Just kidding, love you. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's like everything that's good is just coming, it's just leaving their hearts and minds. Here it is, verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Like if you're, you know, a mass murderer, I mean, if you're a child molester, I mean, you just know like there's just something so warped and so messed up in your soul, that there's some punishment, there's some justice that, justice that needs to come about. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Now, look, there's one thing. When you talk about, let's compare the golden, all right, and you compare the godless, look, it's one thing to know the right thing to do and not do it. That's hypocritical. It's another completely thing. To know the wrong thing, you know it's the wrong thing to do, but you call it good. You call it the right thing to do, and you do it. And I think that we see this particular truth, like at least we feel like this particular truth is played out in our world every day. Because the evening news can just be called updates on evil in the world, right? <laughs> That's what you can call the evening news, updates on evil in the world. And have you noticed, have you noticed that when it comes to people just kind of doing really malicious, really evil things, you know, did you notice none of them are asking for permission to do those things? Right? They just feel like people are just kind of controlled and they're going to do, they just feel like they have a right to revenge. They feel like they have the right to get back at you. It's the right thing. Like, it's okay to just go ahead and mass kill innocent people. It's okay. You just feel like, they just feel like they have a right to hate another group. They don't need permission to do evil because the evil that they do, they say it's right to do. Now, I just think it's interesting because I think about Christians on the opposite end. And I think about Christians that so many times 
When it comes to doing the right thing, we're always asking God whether or not it's the right thing to do. Because we ask God, like, oh, God, should I forgive this person? Right? Do you really need permission from God for that? God, should I go on a mission trip? God, should I invest in my community, in my neighborhood? God, should I be more loving to my wife, to my spouse? We ask all these things, God, for, for permission, to things that he has already, said, uh, has already said yes to, right? You don't need to ask for God's permission for things that his word has already been declared right. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, my, my kids, um, me and Mason, and for some reason, I've just been on this, this brownie, uh, brownie high. I don't know, I just been wanting to eat a lot of brownies. But anyway, a couple weeks ago, you know, Mia and Mason come to me and they just said, hey, can we make some brownies? Right? And I just said, you don't need to ask for my permission to make brownies. Right? Like, that's a good thing. Right? Yeah. I, you don't need to ask. Just go ahead and, and make it. Right? Because they're doing something really good, something really godly. Right? <laughs> Look, if people in this world if they are not asking for God's permission to do the wrong that God has already said no to, church, you don't need to ask for God's permission to do the right when he's already said yes. Amen? Amen? Okay. So Paul is coming back to, of course, this, this broad category of people who are, the, uh, who are the ungodly, right? The godless. Paul's saying, man, they're just unjust. We are just unjust, unjust people because of our evil. Because we do evil. Okay, now. That's two groups. You got the golden, you got the uh, godless, and then Paul turns his attention to this last group, the good. I call them the good. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, the good. It's the good slash it's the moral, okay? All right, so this is the group. See, the good people are, I'm guessing, what where is where a lot of us would put us in the category. I'm a good person. We sing along with uh, Rag and Bone Man, I'm not perfect, I'm only human after all, don't put the blame on me. All right, that's kind of where a lot of us would say, because a lot of us, we, we think of ourselves as good, as moral people, because what we do is we, we say this, we say, Paul, I get it, I see those religious, ultra-religious hypocrites, whatever religion it might be, okay, and when they're caught in their religious hypocrisy, they're covering up stuff, they're using money, you know, they're, they're, they're using money in all the wrong ways for their own personal gain. Those people are just really bad. Like, I don't do stuff like that. Right? That's just bad when you're hypocrisy. Everyone has a level of hypocrisy, but their level of hypocrisy is so great. And then, Paul, I also agree with you that when it comes to the evil people in this world, people who start wars and genocide and child, you know, uh, kidnappers and uh, whatever, whatever it might be. They, yeah, those are the really evil people. So I don't do anything extreme. I'm right in the middle. I'm like Goldilocks, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Like, I'm just right. I'm okay. You know, I don't do anything extreme. To which Paul says, to which Paul would say, exactly. Chapter 2, verse, uh, chapter two, verse 1. He says, you, therefore, have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else. Okay? So he's saying this. The very fact that you are judging yourself in light of the most extreme evil and saying, basically saying you're better than them, that you don't deserve any condemnation, Paul's saying exactly that's what's wrong 
with you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. He's saying you're hypocritical too. He's saying you do some evil too. But yeah, you just don't think you're as bad as other people. And because you don't think you're as bad as other people, you think you're better than them. He says, God doesn't think like that. That's not righteousness either. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, he's saying God is the only one who can judge. You're judging yourself based on these two extremes. And remember, our judgment is just so temperamental. It's so, it's so relative to ourselves. We're always going to think that we're, we come out okay. But only God, if God is the standard, then only God can judge rightly. Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? No. So the morally good, the moral middle class, you could say, or the upper middle class, Paul is saying, that we are guilty of judgment and condemnation, thinking that we're just better than any, everyone else. And God does not think that way. So we are unjust because of our prideful contempt of others. Now, I don't know, you know, where you, you have those three different categories, right? The golden, the godly, uh, the godless, um, the good. But I don't know where you kind of figure yourself in those categories. But I think that for me, I just see myself in all three of those parts. I see the hypocrisy in me. And it bothers me. can't stand it. I see when I do evil. When I do things that I just know that God doesn't want me to do or to think. Things that God does, I know that he does not want me to think. And there's a huge, huge part of me where I'm judgy. Because I'm a pastor too, right? That's even worse, right? Because yeah, I'm a pastor, you know, and, and it's so easy to, to kind of see differences and things like that. And how people live their lives. I'm, I'm very, very judgy. It's so easy for me to just look at people and judge them. That's why Paul comes to the conclusion when he looks at the ultra godly, when he looks at the ultra evil, and when he looks at everyone in between, he comes to this stark conclusion. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He looks at this broad view of humanity. He says this, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Let's just close there. Have a great week. All right. Paul, he looks at humanity and he says, guys, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I was, I was talking with uh, uh, Mia at dinner time. And she was asking what my sermon was about. And I told her, yeah, it's about the, the sinfulness of humans. And um, told her the title is called, It's Pretty Bad. And she was like, it's pretty bad. She said, it's worse than that. It's like, yeah, you got it. It's pretty bad. It's worse than that, right? We're pretty unrighteous. We're pretty messed up. Now, I know that there, there may be some of you here who are still thinking, well, I still, I'm not that bad. I don't feel like I, I'm not 
that unjust, I'm not that evil, I'm not as bad as, and then you fill in the blank. And whenever you say, I'm not as bad as, right, you always pick someone that's way, way, way lower at the bottom, right? And then Paul would say, exactly, you're doing it again. You're just judging the people again. You're like, oh, dang it, okay, right? We humans have an incredible, incredible capacity. We have an amazing capacity for denial. We have an amazing capacity to see ourselves way, way, way better than we really are. It's kind of like this. Have you ever, you know, you're driving uh, on I-5 and you're, you're going home and it's, it's rush hour and you're in stuck in traffic, okay? Have you ever done this? You're stuck in traffic. You're just sitting there, dead, not going anywhere. And you say this, oh, guys, I hate traffic. Who's, who's ever said, I hate traffic? Okay, almost everyone here, right? Okay. You are traffic. All right. I know you don't feel like you're traffic because like, no, I'm not traffic. I'm, I'm just an individual in a car and I'm trying to make my way through traffic. It's those people who are traffic. No, you are traffic. Okay. Have you ever been in a crowded room, like a venue, and you're trying to get from one end of the room to the other? Or maybe you've got your kids toting along and it's like, gosh, it's so... You know, or, or you're thinking about going to a place that's going to have a, a lot of people in there, and you're like, I don't want to go because, have you ever said this? I hate crowds. Who's ever said, I hate crowds? You're in a crowd. You say, I hate crowds. Okay? Yeah. You are the crowd. <laughs> right? No, I'm not the crowd. I'm just a person. I'm trying to get through the crowd. I, I'm not crowd. I'm a person. I'm an individual, but I'm trying to get through. No, you're crowd. You're crowd. Okay? All right, here, here's, let me put it all together. Have you had like a really bad day at work? And, uh, you know, you go to work and your, your boss kind of lays into you for something that, that you did and maybe you didn't do, okay? So you feel really crappy. And, and then you go to your desk. And then you say, I just need to kind of, I need to punt my mind a little bit. And you, go on the, you go on the web and, you know, you look up CNN, you look up Fox News, whatever your version of fake news you want to listen to, okay? And you, you look at it and you just see all the worst headlines, right? You're like, this world stinks right? This world's so messed up, right? And then after that, you go, go home from work, and you stop by the grocery store, and there's a big crowd there. There's a big crowd there. You're like, man, I hate crowds, right? And man, you just get what you want. Then you're, you're going home, you're still stuck in traffic, right? And you're, man, I hate traffic, right? And then you go home, and you sit on the couch, and you just had a really bad day, you know? And then you just say to yourself, man, I can't stand people. Anyone ever say, I can't stand people? Or something to that fact of like, I don't, this world's messed up. Has anyone ever said that? Yeah. You, you know what I'm going to say next, right? Yeah. You're, you're the people, right? You are the world, right? We have this amazing denial that, no, 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 I'm not those bad people that mess up my world and mess up my life, and, you know, because all everyone else is really nasty, and I'm just the person who's trying to navigate through. No, you are people. You are the world, we're all part of it, right? And so some of you, maybe you're not Christian, and I'm so glad that you're here today. You might find this particular part of the talk really interesting. You know why? Because even though you may not be religious or you may not necessarily agree with like religious systems or things like that, so to speak, you find this part of the talk really fascinating because you're not, you're not in denial. You're like, you know, there's something true that this writer, Paul, is talking about. And so, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm not Christian. But what the Bible is describing, it really sounds like me. Because it's like, I, I know there's something in me where I try to do good sometimes, but I can't seem to do it. 
Like, I know that I have my own standards of what is righteous and what's right, but there's many, many times that even though I know logically in my mind what's right and what's wrong, I don't do what's right. It's, it's like there's something in me that keeps, like, leading me back uh, to something, a thought or a person or an action or something that I don't want to do, but it feels like I don't have any control. There's, there's some of you who feels like, gosh, there's a part of me that's like broken. I don't know quite how to fix. And that's all being described right here, that even our own standards of righteousness, that we cannot eat, meet them myself. And Paul is saying this, that the problem with the human condition, that none of us can escape. I don't care if you've meditated your way, if you're the Dalai Lama, if you're, if you're Christian royalty, if you're Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, Frank, Franklin Graham, whoever. I don't care if you're Miss Universe, how beautiful you are, how cute you look, okay? Like, we all have this problem. I don't care if you're Tony Robbins. None of them are perfect, all right? Guys, not even Oprah Winfrey is perfect, okay? And the Bible calls this particular condition sin. Sin. In the Greek, it's hamartia. Hamartia. And it's interesting, the definition of this word. This word sin is not even coming with a particular moral stand. It means this, you missed the mark. Sin means you've missed the mark. You have fallen short. You've made a mistake. Now, if you missed a mark, or if you've fallen short, or if you made a mistake, then what is this, then the standard? The standard, of course, in the Christian context, we're talking about God. We're sinful because we're just not like God at all. We're sinful because we fall way, way, way short of the righteousness of God. And we're sinful because we make a lot of mistakes. And sometimes the things that we do on purpose, we don't say, yeah, I purposely did it. We just call it a mistake, even though it's something that we did on purpose. God doesn't do those things. God's perfect. And so Paul's going to explain more. So we have sin. Sin is not only action, but sin, uh, we have a sinful nature. It's part of who we are. It's this force, this part of us. And Paul's going to explain more about it in the chapters to come. But at least at this point right now, you have an idea. You understand what's wrong with you, what's wrong with me. And for some of you, again, if you're not a believer and you kind of, you know, knew this Christian thing, you're like, that's really interesting. Because it's like, how is it that I can, I can train my dog to do tricks? Like, I can potty train, I can house train my dog, but how come I can't house train me? Not literally, but figuratively, right? I mean, how come, like, there's just this thing where I'm trying to fix myself, but I can't? And let me just say this. Not getting into any more into religion, all right, but just even in just like the secular world, a lot of people are trying to fix themselves. They understand there's this, there's this dichotomy in their heart. They try to fix themselves. And this is what they try to do. Some people try to do this. When it comes to their sin, and let me just use that in a broad term, they're missing the mark of themselves. People try to control sin. People try to control sin. What is the best-selling literary genre in the United States? All right? For years, for decades, the best-selling literary genre was the self-help book includes religious material but then all of these gurus tony robbins people, people like that who are not coming from a religious perspective but say this is how you help yourself why is that the best-selling group it's been the best-selling number one best it's the third um in the past couple of years but why has it always been the best-selling because people are trying they need help to help themselves 
They don't know how to help themselves. They know there's a problem. There's an issue. There's some addiction in their life that they keep going back to, and they need help to, go, to, get to, to try to control that. Now, I don't like to use the word addicted because it's always associated with that one word in our society that people are addicted to. Young men, old men are especially addicted to this. You know the word. It starts with letter S. Right? Say it with me. Starbucks. Okay. No. So I know some of you guys were thinking, no, it's sex, right? Right? So sex is also this uncontrollable addiction that a lot of people are addicted to. But guess what? And, and guess what is the number one selling genre? Okay? It's actually erotica and romance. That's now taken over from self-help. So that kind of goes, goes to show you where, where kind of our culture's headed, all right? But you can be addicted to food. You could be addicted to TV. You could be addicted to fame. You could be addicted to getting your own way. You could be addicted to laziness. You could be addicted to indifference. Okay, it's a lot of things. So people try to control sin. People try to tame sin. You tame sin through meditation, hypnosis, subliminal messages. People try to do that. People try to unlock sin. You're trying to understand really deep down what's wrong with you. A lot of you, some of you have spent money trying to do this. You go to a counselor, you talk about your mom, you talk about your dad, you talk about uh, uh, childhood trauma, you talk about transference, you talk about self-awareness, self-perception, all right? A lot of us, some of us try to manage sin so that everything in your life is perfect except for this one area, this one secret that you have. It's kind of like my bedroom. Our bedroom's pretty clean, but if you were to open the drawers of my drawers, it's, it's just a mess. It's just a pile of clothes, okay? So everything in your life looks good, but you have this one area of sin that you indulge in. And the last one, if you find that you can't control sin, you can't tame sin, you can't unlock sin, you can't manage it, some people, they decide, I'm just going to give into it. I'm just going to give into it. And a lot of us here, We've seen the consequences in our own lives and other people's lives when they gave into sin. Do you know the consequences that someone you knew, they gave into sin repeatedly and it destroyed a marriage. They gave into sin repeatedly and ruined a career. They gave into sin repeatedly and broke up a friendship. They gave into sin repeatedly and crashed a business deal. It just caused all of those around them what felt like to be death. And maybe there's some of you who knew that there was just a sin that someone just repeated into, just were into, and it caused a literal death. Sin is just untamable. You can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do about sin? Okay, let me share you with someone, share you, share with you, someone who has an answer. Okay? His name is Richard. Okay? There's this guy named Richard Thaler. He's a professor of the Booth School of uh, Business at the University of Chicago. He won this year's Nobel Prize in Economics. Okay, really smart guy. Specifically, his research in behavioral economics, which is a combination of economics and psychology. The reason I bring this up, okay, we will talk about Jesus next week. All right, <laughs> okay, like where's Jesus in this? I want to help you understand how people are dealing with this sin issue, even though they may not call it, but it's out there. They might call it a different name, but how people are dealing with this sin issue out in the world other than religion, okay? So, it's really interesting. This is what the professor says, Nobel Peace Prize, on this particular work that he does between economics and psychology. He says this, We Americans eat too much, take on too much debt, save too little, and put off anything mildly unpleasant as long as possible. Humans prefer instant gratification right now, even if they know that being patient would yield them more money or a better life down the road. And this is where it gets really real. He says this, we cannot 
trust ourselves to think clearly. This guy's not a Christian, just coming from his research. Okay? We cannot trust ourselves to think clearly, to, pan pla- to pan- plan patiently. And this is a big one. We cannot trust ourselves to make the right decisions on a consistent basis. And so a lot of his research, what he does, because he deals in economics, he says, because people can't make the right decisions for their own future, the only way that you can help people to actually do that is to force them to do it. Because no one's going to do it on their own. He's just saying we're all lost. We think we're making all these logical financial decisions, but he says, no, the only way we can actually help people to help themselves is we have to control their lives and force them. So he's done these like research projects where he forces new employers, uh, employees when they're coming in new, like they have to invest in a 401k. There's no option, right? You know, or you have to own, you have to uh, have a retirement account or you have to save up for, he does, the only way you control people's sinfulness and their ability, because of their inability to make a right choice is to force them to make good choices. In other words, they have no choice. That's the world's way of dealing with it. Same way, there is no answer to this. So what do I do? I have a sinful nature. What do I do? Come back next week, all right? Come back next week. It's really good. But let's end with those same questions that Paul has for us in the very beginning that he's trying to get to. Am I righteous? Am I holy? Am I just? Am I righteous? Am I holy? Am I just? What you want to know is that God going back, is that God is always holy. God is always righteous. God is, God's always right. He's not a hypocrite. God is never hypocrite. God is not evil. God is not depraved. God is not judgmental. He's not always thinking he's better than everyone else. He's better than you. God is always loving. God is always consistently, fairly, without prejudice, a God of justice and righteousness because God is the standard. God is righteousness and justice and mercy and love. And what I want you to think about for a moment is that if you knew a person, I mean, if you really knew a person or if you really could know a person that was always righteous and just and full of love and mercy, that he could only be those things because he defines those things. So nothing else that is opposite of that can exist him. If you knew a person that was so righteous and holy and just and pure and beautiful and loving and mercy, wouldn't you just fall in love with that person? I mean, if you knew a person was like that, wouldn't you just fall in love with a person like that? I would. I would. God is the only one in this world who is righteous and just and pure and holy. That's why we can have great leaders and great churches, but ultimately I'm going to put my complete hope and faith in God alone. In God alone. Because only He alone is worthy. That's why I love Him. Because in my sinfulness, in all the ways that I've just missed the mark, God constantly comes back and tells me that he loves me, that he forgives me. That's why I'm a follower of Jesus, because no one else would do that for me. (laughs) No one else would. 
And that's why when we come here, like when we sing and when we praise God, it's not this obligation that we're supposed to sing and give, we're somehow giving God penance, you know? It's like we owe it to God. No, we, we come to sing because we're free. Worship is this free expression of love. It's like birds chirping, a, a love song to each other. That, that's what worship is. It's our freedom in Christ knowing that we've been forgiven. God, such a good God. Church, would you stand with me and let's pray? Father, thank you so much for this day today. We love you, God. We worship you. And we just declare, Father, as a church, that you're the only one, God, who is righteous and good and holy, and we are not. And I just pray, Father, that during this week, we'd really think about that. We'd really think about ourselves. Are we really righteous? Are we really that good, that holy, that just? And I pray that it doesn't put us in a spiral of despair, because we're going to come back on Sunday and hear the good news. But where it's supposed to bring us is the picture of you. That you are God and you're holy. And we just fall in love with who you are. And I pray that's what's happening to us every single day as a believer, follower of Christ. That we're just following, falling in love more and more every day with who you are and what you've done for us. I pray that would be our passion that will be our energy that leads us into this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's